Welcome back to Progress Over Perfection. Hey, Bird, how are you doing today? Hey, welcome back, guys. Hey, hey, hey. So what are we talking about this week? So we are going to continue <laughs> the Black History Month theme oh, that we've been doing. All right, all right. So folks, I'm going to share with you my lovely husband um, shared at our daughter's upper school yesterday for Black History Month. And he did such a great job. Um, we actually recorded it. And so we're going to use some of that today um, on our podcast to share with you guys um, Russell's ancestry and history and it is rich y'all there were some things i didn't even know about yesterday and i was we're like all, wait we're, who, we're, all, still, we're all still learning we're all still, <laughs> still learning and hope I have, i'm hoping i have more time to do more research and deeper dives in, in the future but I, I know quite a bit of my ancestry dating back to the revolutionary war and the founding of this country so pretty yes. cool yes he has some very cool things speaking of that like i gotta be honest with y'all when i first met russell I was so intimidated by all this and I didn't even know half of the stuff I know now. Um, I just, you know, thought it was so cool, but yet so intimidating that he has so much rich history um, and influence and cool stories from his family. Um, I didn't have that. I came um, from a smaller family. I had a big um, family of origin growing up, but my mom and dad, my immediate family, correct. But my mom and dad were both only children. Right. So growing up, I had no aunts and uncles. I had no cousins. Um, I did have some, I believe, second or third cousins. I got to be honest, y'all. I don't even know how half of that works. The second, the (laughs) third the remove yeah because i it wasn't something i was raised really like knowing a lot about aunts and uncles and cousins Uh, so that whole part is still so confusing to me um but also my father and his side of the family we really kind of had never known and i talked about this on a podcast previously not in detail and maybe one day we'll share a lot more but my dad was actually stolen from the hospital when he was born um he was taken he was stolen you know he was uh, the his the woman conned the young lady out. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways you could tell this story or spin the story. Let me be honest. Uh, but my father was ripped away from his birth family and his siblings very, very young um, at birth and never really knew them. More recently, I did see a picture of my paternal grandmother on Facebook um, that someone had posted. And I was shocked to see how much I resembled her. I said, wow, like I could definitely tell that I was related to this person. But I got to be honest, there's not really, I don't have this desire to like trace my family's history. And I got to be honest, I feel like what I know, I know enough. And I don't really want to know more. And I'm not like, let me stick my head in the sand and act like, you know, it didn't happen. No, I know. I know it happened. I've heard. I've heard stories, you know, I've seen things with my great uncle um, that were said. I've heard stories from my grandfather um, that I just am at a point that I'm really not proud um, of the part that my ancestors played in the mistreatment of Black people and slavery. So I'm just really not that interested. I have grace for them um, and understand they knew what they did and they worked with the best that they had possibly, but um, I just don't have any interest in exploring that. Um, But I am very excited and blessed that our girls have such a rich history on your side of the family um, and that you guys have taken the time to trace your history so that they know where they come from and the, the people that they come from. So I'm so excited for everybody to hear Russell's share about his family. And then we will follow up the end with an encouragement. Enjoy. Thank you for that warm uh, introduction, and, and it's great to see um, 
the diversity of Indian Creek and to be here with the upper school. My daughter is in second grade, and I've been threatening them all weekend that I was going to come up here and start singing in Kanto if they didn't act right, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't punish you that way um, by, by doing that today. So, again, thank you, and, and the wonderful performance for the middle school. My, my, my daughter is ready to jump up there and, and perform and, and be in Matilda as well. Um, so it's great to be here this morning. I want to thank my friend John, who's here, who I've known for over two, uh, two decades. Um, uh, uh, the headmaster, of course, and, and Doug, and, and the faculty and leadership of the upper school. As uh, Mr. McQuisington mentioned, I am descendant of a free black man who fought in the American Revolutionary War by the name of Henry Bakeman. And this is my great-grandfather times six. Now, we've been able to uh, ascertain that he was born in Somerset, uh, New Jersey. And he was born free, which is very unusual at the time. And I've you know, been doing some more research this month because I've been sharing this story. Um, and there's a, a book that was written in 1961, uh, The Negro and the American Revolution. And of course, as you might think about that, you might think about black folks who fought in the American Revolution to found this country. And they're believed to be a minimum of about 5,000, but some would say that as many as 10,000 blacks fought on the side of the Americas to fight, to, on the side of America, under, of course, the leadership of George Washington, our head of the colonial army and our first president to found this country. But we also have, uh, know that there's 10 to perhaps 20 times as many uh, blacks fought on the side of the British. Um, and it's, historians will tell you, really, the purpose and the goal was who was going to offer the best deal to get liberty, to get freedom, right? And so I think about my ancestor, who, again, was born free, and as a young, as a late teen, so not much older than many of you, 17, 18, 19, enlisted in the colonial army. So he ended up in upstate New York under the leadership of Colonel Willamette, and he fought. He was known to be a courier, so we have research that tells us he knew how to navigate the woods, and he would take messages back and forth from his, uh, his uh, commanding officer to the commanding officer of the, of the region. And he also was said that played the banjo. So again, I speak about the, the need for the arts and its importance. His, his, musical, his musical talent encouraged the soldiers on those cold winter nights, as you can imagine, near Niagara in upstate New York. And it said that he froze off a few of his toes and that a, a, one of his uh, compatriots even passed away in a cold winter, unable to keep warm and, of course, getting food and supplies. You can imagine uh, so many things were very difficult in that time. So uh, having uh, th the battles that he was engaged in, apparently the colonial army lost. But of course, as we all know, and sit here today over 200 years later, we know who won the war. Uh, fast forward a little bit, and we have records that he had to write to get his pension. Now, either the record keeping was poor, but also we do know that um, there was a lot of uh, consternation and concern about having uh, black soldiers in the army, the idea of giving a, a black person a, a musket or a gun and what they were going to do with it. Were they going to fight? Were they, were they able-bodied? Were they of sound mind? Of course, we all uh, know that to be true and, and, and uh, nonsense, right? But these were the fears that folks had. And so he had to write his congressperson to get his pension, um, having settled on a farm in upstate New York in Onondaga County near Syracuse, New York, Syracuse University, as many, I'm sure, know. And eventually he did receive his pension. And about a year later, he died. Then his wife, uh, Jane Bakeman, we have a letter that she wrote to get the pension for her husband. Eventually she got it, and uh, she, uh, a month later, after receiving, finally receiving the pension, passed away in the early, uh, I think, 1820s. Uh, so fast forward um, to my great-great-grandmother, uh, Electa Bakeman, 
she was uh, born uh, in Onondaga County on the Indian reservation. So my grandfather thought that perhaps she was a part of the reservation. The story goes that you know, we, you know, there was a casino being built. And say, hey, you know, free education, tuition, maybe we're a part of the tribe. So we're able to find out that, yes, Electa was born on the reservation, but was not, in fact, part of the tribe. So this is how we've been able to, to trace this history back. And I'm very proud to be a member of the Sons of the American Revolution, one of the oldest and most prestigious genealogical associations in the world, to be able to, to trace this history. And I share this in part to encourage you all today to go home and maybe as you're thinking about this day and, and, and the weeks ahead and many of you are preparing to graduate, to maybe write down a few questions or think of a few questions you could ask your parents when you get home. I know there's so much win, wisdom that you're getting here at this wonderful school, Indian Creek, but there's so much wisdom at the table of your parents, at the table of your grandparents, and if you're lucky at the table, maybe your great-grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, to know that history to know that as you prepare to leave here, but you progress through here at Indian Creek, to understand and to know your roots and where you came from. What are the values that your family had? What are the things your family had to overcome? So going back to Electa Bakeman, um, her husband was a guy by the name of Joseph Martin Fugue, which is my great, great grandfather. As Mr. McQuisiton mentioned in my introduction, he escaped slavery in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is near Nashville. And he boarded a union train with his older brother um, and he, they hit out. They went to sell apples, and when the train left, they didn't get off. So my great-great-great-grandmother, again, sent her children, her young sons, say, go to the Union train on, on a Vicksburg campaign, heading south to fight, and sell the apples. They got on the train, hid where the horses were, in the, in the uh, car where the horses were, and did not get off the train. So they were uh, discovered, and a white doctor um, who was a part of the, the Union Army, adopted my great-great-grandfather and moved him where? Upstate New York, Onondaga County, where he was from, a town called Baldwinsville, which is, again, near Syracuse. And he learned the trade of blacksmith from a guy named Russell, which is my middle name. And he used that trade to open his own blacksmith shop. And we still have a sign in my grandmother's basement, J.M. Fugit Blacksmith. And apparently there was an altercation at one point he was even wounded uh, in, in, a, in like a duel, like shot um, in, in a fight at one point and survived that and continued to run his blacksmith shop and also ran a farm. And he filed a U.S. patent in 1888. We have a record that shows he filed a U.S. patent uh, for spring mount adjustment to the buggy. So you know, had horse and buggy. So before the automobile, uh, my father always jokes, you know, my family might have had his first fortune if it not for the car had come around a few decades later and it made improvements to the buggy. So he had five, they had five children, Alepta and, and uh, Joseph Martin, and all five went to college, which was quite an achievement. And again, first part of the 20th century, 19 teens. And the youngest of which was my namesake, Joseph Russell Fugit, my great-grandfather. He graduated from Cornell in 1912 and was uh, not a founder, but was on the first line following the founders of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated the oldest African-American uh, fraternity, co collegiate fraternity at Cornell. And he graduated with a degree in agricultural sciences. Now the plan for him was to return back to upstate New York to run his father's farm. He was the youngest, that was what he was supposed to do, but he was lured to Tuskegee, Alabama by a guy by the name of Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington had founded Tuskegee with the idea of training African-Americans who, you know, maybe a generation two post-slavery to get education, learn a trade, and be able to, to provide for themselves and survive 
here in America. So he was lured there to Tuskegee and taught. And he taught alongside of George Washington Carver, who was a very famous and well-known uh, agricultural scientist and inventor. And he was said to be the only person who was allowed to watch uh, George Washington Carver's uh, plants while he went away and toured and came to Washington to speak. He invented the peanut. Definitely encourage you to check him out. Um, and just an amazing inventor and, and scientist. And that's where he met my uh, great-grandmother, Hazel, um, who was from Kansas. She attended the University of Kansas, had A's and Virgil and Cicero. Was it from all, everything we know about her, and, and of course, my, my, this is my father's grandmother, was a brilliant woman, played classical violin, also was an educator. And they met there and married, and then ended up in Bordentown, New Jersey, and then later ended up in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where my great-grandfather taught at the Gay Street School for over 40 years. And on October 13th of 1965, um, as he was retiring, um, they, the uh, superintendent of the school released a proclamation uh, uh, making October 13th Joseph R. Fugate Day in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and they named a middle school after him, which is still there to this day. And I don't know what's happening behind the screen, but that's my family. Um, on December 1st of 2009, we visited the school. They just had released an extension. You'll see middle there, my, uh, my grandfather who, who passed away, and my, my grandmother who's still with us at, at 96 years old. And it's just such an amazing story. And I was blessed last week after 13 years, my family had kind of lost touch. My, my grandfather had passed away in, in 2016. I was able to go and maintain the connection. Of course, my father is thrilled. And so I knew I gave you the right name because my great-grandfather passed away about three years before I was born. And, and, um, and in honoring him, I now bear that name, but I go by my middle name, Russell. So you can see the next slide, there are a couple pictures of me uh, being there. And if you saw the very first slide, you'll notice that was a picture of me from uh, 2009. I think I might have been even wearing the same tie in 2009. <laughs> um, but you'll see me there last week at Joseph R. Fugue with the picture of my great-grandfather. Uh, and I was uh, blessed enough to meet teachers um, there who um, have elders, uncles and grandparents who were taught by my great-grandfather and spoke to me about the educator and the man that he was. And I just want to say to all the faculty here that I think is such a testament, and it dawned on me last week, and I want to share this, and I hope all of you students are listening in this day and age where, where teachers have had to endure so much to get you educated that there's a school named after an educator. And I hope we all can remember that, and I encourage the superintendent of Westchester to t take note of that, and I hope we all can have appreciation for all of our educators. My family still have, I have a, a cousin, two cousins and an aunt who still work in Baltimore City public schools. Um, so education is very near and dear to my heart. And so I, I just thought it meant so much to know that a, a school was named after an educator in this season. And so again, I just encourage you to, to, to think about your teachers, think about those in your family who might be educators, everyone who's helped get you to this point, to, to be encouraged and to encourage them and to be nice and kind to show up on time. Seniors, I know it's hard. <laughs> when, it's six, when it's 67 degrees in February, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to do it. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about um, my, my, the people I've known in my family. Um, my grandfather, who passed away in 2016, went to Morgan State, was on the undefeated football team. Um, and then he ended up uh, finishing at Coppin State. And he ended up uh, at a three-letter agency known as the National Security Agency, NSA. And he was head of the crypt cryptology school. That's where they break codes. He was, uh, a, he was a very quiet, unassuming man. I, I miss him dearly. And he, uh, but from what I've gathered, no one has ever said this, but I think he was more or less a low-level mathematical genius. My father tells the story of one time, uh, you know, coming home, and, and my grandfather said, I got a pack. You know, where are you going? And he was going, I think, to one of the, uh, the Baltic states in Europe and, like, flying out. He said, well, they don't speak English. Um, you don't speak their language. Dad, how are you going to teach them? 
And my grandfather turned to my father and said, math is universal language. I don't need, we all understand numbers. So that was the language he used to teach the codes that they were, you know, early part of the Cold War, right? Um, and my father would tell those stories much better than I would, but always stuck with me. Later on, he would teach a community college in retirement part-time and, and then spend a lot of his time discovering the history of my ancestor, Henry Bakeman, and of um, his, uh, his ancestors and my uh, great-great-grandfather, Joseph Martin Fugit, and, and really allowing us to have this rich history. So in 2005, he became the first African-American to join the Sons of the American Revolution and thus integrating the Maryland State Chapter. Um, and my father joined in 06 and I joined in 07. My, my, my younger brother, who's an attorney, is currently the president of our chapter. I'm, I'm second vice president. We got drafted back in after a few years out of leadership and I've remained in my role as, as chaplain, which has been very interesting. Um, and then my father has had a very fascinating life. I often refer to him as the Black Forest Gump. He's done so many things. If <laughs> you've ever seen that movie, until recently, he was the youngest player ever drafted in the National Football League. And you'll see the picture of him. Uh, he started Super Bowl X in 1976 for the Dallas Cowboys. He then left there as the lowest paid starting tight end and was then the, became the highest paid starting tight end when he left Dallas and came to Washington to play for the now Commanders. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know it. I know it. I'm glad some of you laughing and get, and get that. See, because Dallas did not have a night school. He wanted to go to law school, like his big brother, Reginald F. Lewis, who went to Harvard Law, and I'll tell his story briefly as, as we conclude. And so, um, played for the Cowboys, wrote for the Washington Post, was on Channel 9 News here. For those of you who might be old enough in the 70s, might remember him being there. Um, had a story below the fold, and Howard, uh, Woodward and Bernstein reminded him that, yeah, he had a front page story, but it was below the fold. For those of you who know the story of Watergate and, and Woodward and Bernstein and, and the, and the uh, Nixon investigation, right? Uh, so very, uh, very fascinating life. Um, in 93, he was uh, approved by Major League Baseball to buy the Orioles. Unfortunately, that didn't work out, and the Angelos family to this day still owns uh, the Baltimore Orioles. I believe he's the first and only African-American ever be approved by Major League Baseball to acquire a team. So I'm just blessed to have uh, this tremendous story and this tremendous history. And to share it, to encourage you, obviously, it gives me tremendous strength. I hope perhaps it gets your mind going and gives many of you strength and encouragement to understand that you're not here by accident. To understand that there's people who've sacrificed, who've worked very hard for you to have this opportunity to be at a wonderful place like Indian Creek and to go forward. Of course, I think we know that uh, Carter G. Woodson was the founder of what was then called Negro History Week and now it's become over the years Black History Month. And he said that he, he's said to have said that he didn't want to know so much to be a study or uh, of, of, of blacks, so to speak, right? Or blacks in history, but he really wanted to be a history month first and foremost. And so I lean on that and stand on that today um, as I conclude. I really want to just tie up a, a few um, a points um, about my uncle, Reginald F. Lewis, who again did the billion dollar leverage buyout in 1987. Um, he was you know, born to a single mom. My grandfather uh, married him, married my uh, grandmother. Um, my grandmother was a single mom. About eight, my uncle was about eight years old when they got married. Then they had five more fugues, my dad being the oldest after that. Um, went to Virginia State on a football scholarship, blew out his shoulder, and worked his way through Virginia State, which is a historically black college down near Richmond, Virginia, and then went to Harvard Law School from there. And from, uh, is believed to be the only person to ever get into Harvard Law without applying. Uh, he, went to a, he got into a summer program, and he just sh shined so brightly in the summer program, and he went home in 1965 and in segregated Jim Crow Baltimore with a degree in uh, economics with honors from Virginia State. The best job he could get was putting bottle caps on the bottles at the end of the conveyor belt at a factory in downtown Baltimore. So having been able to go to Harvard Law, the dean called and said, can you get here, Reg? And he said, well, I don't have 
money I haven't applied, I don't know how to pay tuition, don't worry about it, can you get here? So 25 bucks, a suitcase, and on the train, the first thing he did when he got to the dean's office was fill out the application, he went to Harvard Law. From there he went to Paul Weiss and then left Paul Weiss, which is a very prestigious law firm, and uh, founded his own law firm, uh, Lewis and Clarkson, on Wall Street, the first African-American owned law firm on Wall Street. It became known for doing uh, MESBICs, which were government-financed business deals that was designed to inject capital into, into African-American and women-owned businesses at the time in the 70s. He became one of the go-to lawyers on Wall Street for those types of deals. And as he studied these transactions, he said, I can do these deals. So first, he owned the first uh, radio station to play reggae in the Caribbean down in St. Thomas. I remember actually visiting that radio station, right? Uh, later on, he uh, purchased McCall Pattern, which is a sewing patterns company. And people thought it was a, a two-company, it was a one-company in a, a two-company industry, but there were three companies, right? And uh, he was able to uh, sell that two years later for a 90-to-1 return. And that got the attention of a guy named Michael Milken, who backed him for a billion dollars to go out and buy Beatrice Foods, which at the time was one of the three largest food companies in the world, over almost 60 companies in 30 countries. And again, this is before the euro. So very high level of complexity, right? And so um, he was able to accomplish that in 1987 and, and, and centralized operations in Paris, France. And unfortunately, six years later, he, he passed away um, from brain cancer. And my father ran the company, then my aunt ran it, and we've since divested all of those assets. But my uncle's legacy continues forward today through his book, which I bought a copy of today, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun, which is his autobiography. I encourage you to read it. It's, uh, I think it will be a very inspirational story. If you have any dreams of going into business or finance or mergers and acquisitions, um, it's a, a, lot, a very riveting read, even for me. I skipped the last chapter when my uncle died. It's, as you might imagine, it's very personal to me. Um, so the complexity, right? The courage to um, approach complexity. And that's where I really want to um, end uh, my talk today, which is thinking about you know, what it means here at Indian Creek. And I've been uh, just sitting with, for the last two years that my daughter's been here, the concept of one creek and what that means. Of course, my daughter started out in the lower school um, over with, down, the, down the way here, and now we're all here at at One Creek and what that means for everybody to, to, to be together. Um, and to have unity, an idea of unity truly implies that there must be diversity, right, in order to achieve unity. There has to be some, some level of diversity, diversity of background, diversity of thought, diversity of skill, right, and diversity in a, in a true broadest sense. Of course, in this day and age, we think about race and gender and class and, and many other things I know are oft, often very challenging uh, to discuss. Um, so the challenge I leave to you today is to kind of think about perhaps redefining or, or maybe just not redefining, adding on, bolting on an idea about what it means to be one creek. And I, and I challenge you to think about getting uncomfortable. What does it mean to be uncomfortable? And I end by telling my uncle's story. Of course, it's the most current story. But I mentioned and I emphasize the level of complexity because complexity is often uncomfortable. But that's where the growth happens is when you're able to get uncomfortable and have conversations that might not be the best, right? So I, um, as Mr. McQuisitan mentioned in, in the beginning, uh, my business is called Joomla Network and our tagline is lead with the listen. So we wanna listen first and just sit with it and learn how to get uncomfortable and have conversations and even get uncomfortable with some of the truths in your own family if you ask some questions of your parents, of your grandparents about, about the history so that you can do better, you can build on what's happened. So I just thank everyone for uh, listening today. I hope I wasn't too long, I hope I wasn't too scattered, but I'm really grateful for this opportunity and hope to be back to share with you some more in the future. Thank you.
right guys, so we are gonna close out with some encouragement. And this first one is for myself also. Um, don't let others intimidate you or make you feel less than. Um, that is definitely something that I struggled with when I first came into Russell's family. Um, and it took me some years to realize with the, the help of church and therapy and Pastor Jimmy, shout out to him, that God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. And just recently, um, one of the family members in Russell's family paid me such a beautiful compliment around my sobriety and told me that I am a pioneer in the Fugit family in the area of sobriety and getting healthy and talking about it. And that made me feel so good because coming into this family, I always thought that I didn't have anything to offer. I didn't have a gift. I didn't have a degree to their level um, to offer or the ancestry. So I just was really blessed when she told me that the other day. So I just encourage you, don't be intimidated and remember that God doesn't call the qualified. Qualifies the called, and everyone could be. Qualified. That's gotta shout out my grandmother who, who was a high school dropout, and I remember asking her what college did she go to. She said she went to the school of hard knocks. And didn't you say where's that located? <laughs> and I, then I asked her where that was. I was I was a kid, and, and her and my grandfather busted out laughing. <laughs> so I, I didn't get the joke right away, but um, and she's the wisest woman I've ever met. Ninety six years old today, or you know, at this point, so. Anyway. Yes. So I also wanted to, because unlike for me, I don't really have interest in learning much about my history, but some of you might. And so I wanted to share with you um, some of the benefits of knowing your history. And that can be, it gives you a sense of identity. It makes you feel more resilient. I definitely agree with that. If you feel like someone before you has accomplished something or done something, it gives you that like drive and resiliency. Um, it helps you connect with others. It makes you a better human and it can help you make good health choices, you know, knowing what comorbidities or whatever your family may have had. Um, the next one encouragement I wanted to say is don't give up. Keep going no matter what. And that's yeah. what Russell's Uncle Reggie used to say. Uncle Reggie was keep going no matter what. Um, anything you want to add around that? No. Oh, okay. That's, so, that says it all. <laughs> all right. Well, this last part I do want to bring up. So I feel like I love your stories, but all of your stories have a lot of men in them. Yes. And it broke my heart a little bit that there wasn't a lot of talk around what women have accomplished or the women that supported these great men. And so I just want to give honor to Carolyn Fugit, to Russell's grandma, um, for her greatness, for raising, you know, men that have these amazing stories and legacy. And, and to Lloyda Lewis, who was married to Uncle Reggie. I mean, she was an, is an amazing, she's still with us and is an amazing woman. And I just want to honor these ladies. Russ, name some of your other women that yeah. you don't really talk about. I do, I do want to say I have had this thought in doing these talks and I think I've done six or seven of them so far I have one more at least one more schedule um and and certainly have thought about the women and don't know a whole lot about them but I'll, I'll acknowledge their names um Jane Bakeman was the wife of Henry Bakeman so that's my great-grandmother times six um and then I know um Josephine Electa Bakeman uh, Fugit was my great-great-grandmother and of course Josephine is the middle name of our youngest daughter mm -hmm. for that reason in part and there's another ancestor as well who has Josephine as a name and then uh, Hazel uh, Schloss Fugit who was uh, my great-grandmother and the wife of Joseph Russell Fugit my namesake who I mentioned uh, in the speech and of course and I want to shout out my maternal grandmother as well Natalie King 
Payne um, as well, who uh, I haven't told the quite the Payne story, but it's an equally as fascinating story. Um, I know quite a bit about that history as well. And, and maybe next year I'm thinking I'll put a, a talk together about that. But I do want to acknowledge the women and, and my mother and, and all my aunts and the women who make so many of these things possible. And I do you know, owe a debt uh, to them, not only for being here, but also hope to re uh, repay it by perhaps doing some more research and maybe learning a little bit more about who they were and what their lives were like and, and, how, and how they contributed beyond just being married to uh, these men who achieved. Yeah, and I think that would be beautiful because I believe that without the support of these ladies, these men may not have been able to accomplish Will what they have. Will not have been able to Ex accomplish. Exactly. Will I not. mean, the support, the love, and the understanding yes. it takes is... I know what I, I know. Gift. Yeah, because I, I get that gift from you every day. Yeah. And so I, I can only imagine what for what my uncle accomplished and for my great uh, grandparents accomplished. I can only imagine. So we want to honor you, ladies. We love you. Yes. If you're with us be still, encouraged. if you're not, be encouraged. Love you guys. Thanks for joining us today. See you next time. Yep. <laughs>